Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time. Dr. Mark Siegel, welcome to the program. It's great to have you on today. Hi, Bill. Always great to be with you. I don't think people realize how long you have studied pandemics. You have written novels about pandemics. You have created stories in your own brain 20 years ago that has helped you get through this how? Because in, because after 9-11, the American psyche was punctured and we felt vulnerable and, and a bunch of health scares occurred and we felt like every one of them was going to do us in and it turns out a lot of them were hyped. Uh, things like West Nile disease, West Nile virus or even, you know, bird flu, people were prognosticating that's going to kill hundreds of millions. And every single time we overreacted and the, the people that overreacted were also preparing for the big one. They called it the big one. And the, the, the consensus was, Bill, that while we're preparing for one and obsessing on one, say bird flu, suddenly another one's going to creep in our back door and it's going to be one we're least expecting. And Mike Osterholm reminded me of that. Uh, recently, I had him on the radio and I, he had reminded me of that because he was one of those saber rattlers back in the days of prior scares. And then I thought to myself, well, this is the real one. This is the big one. This is a, a massive killer pandemic spreading around the world. Does that mean that fear terms don't matter? Does it mean you can't be afraid beyond your actual risk? And I finally came to the conclusion after several months of studying this pandemic that both are true. In other words, it's not dishonorable or, or sacrilegious to feel that fear is playing a role here, even if the virus itself is real and problematic. Mm. That's a big answer. I've got a lot of questions because of it. Osterholm is the epidemiologist from the University of Minnesota, correct? Correct. All right. And you wrote- he, start, he, start, yeah, he started SIDRAP. The uh, Center of Infectious Disease Research and Prevention. It's quite an organization. And you, you mentioned overreacted. H- how have we overreacted before? Well, I mean, look, with bird flu, we were talking about a virus that only infected birds. And I talked to the top animal researcher in the world on bird flus, and he said, this one will never jump species. It- it's not that kind of a virus. It's going to kill millions of birds, but it's not going to involve humans. I got that from if you will, the horse's mouth, and nobody was talking to animal researchers about a bird flu. They were talking to human researchers. That's been the same problem with this pandemic. People don't always stay in their lane, Bill. With bird flu, there was no lane because it never really jumped species. And they were talking about 100, and, 100 million, and it ended up being less than 100. I mean, that's how, how wrong they were there. So, Here, so in this case, then, it did. it went from a bat to a human being, correct? Yeah, it went from a bat to a human being, but it, there's an intermediary creature we don't know about yet. Maybe a pangolin, or maybe it was the, the Wuhan Institute of Virology. I certainly haven't ruled that out. Somewhere along the line, that horseshoe bat virus became a virus that spread easily human to human. The worst thing about this virus is 
the sequelae, that it causes a lot of unintended consequence. Not the virus itself. It, it's what it does when it's in the body. There's a study just out now, Bill, that shows that uh, one out of the one out of four of the cases of stroke associated with COVID are under the age of 55. So it's not entirely predictable, this virus. Mm. You wrote a book called Fear. Is that, do I recall that title correctly? That, that book, which was a bestseller, was False Alarm, The Truth About the Epidemic of Fear. That uh -huh. is what I've been saying today, that fear is its own epidemic. Fear is its own epidemic, and it's not uh, entirely related to how severe the virus is. And, you know, we talked about this uh, on television, you and I today, we, the president saying, let's leave fear behind and turn to hope. Meanwhile, he's huddled down with a mask on in a room in Congress where everybody's a mile apart. And the CDC says since they've been vaccinated, they could actually be huddled together without a mask. Yeah, it, so it he's was, talking about hope. It was an interesting. He's about hope, but he's living fear. Yeah, it was an interesting visual. I think the CDC this week said you can gather indoors with fully vaccinated people without wearing a mask or staying six feet apart. But at the State of the Union address, I think they had 200 people in, in, um, in Congress, and there was nobody around them. Everybody was sitting there by themselves wearing a mask. So <laughs> I, I think people watch them to be, well, what, what's up with this? What are the rules today? What are, what are the guidelines tonight? It's, it's a moving target. Well, that's A. And B, I want to say that even guidelines have been rigidly adhered to by the fear, fearful people. And you should understand that guidelines are meant to guide. They're not supposed to be some rigid rule where you need an instruction book to figure out. I mean, the CDC guidelines actually say, you know, they have color coding for whether you're vaccinated or not. Are you kidding me? Am I supposed to walk up to someone on the street and say, are you vaccinated? Now, I do that in my office, by the way. I want to know if the patients I'm seeing are vaccinated or not. But you can't do that on the street. And so CDC guidelines should be guiding, not some kind of rigid, nervous uh, policy adherence. Mm -hmm. So the president says we have turned a corner. That was the big message, one of the main headlines from his State of the Union address. Have we? Yes, we have because we're heading into a, an era uh, of way more vaccination. Now he, he's pointing out correctly that over 70% of those over 65 are fully vaccinated, that over 55% of adult Americans at least have one dose. Those are big numbers. Those are not Israel numbers. They're not UK numbers. But another month at this rate, if we can be close to 3 million doses a day, and that's an enormous if because of all of the non-compliance we're facing and mismessaging in the media and social media about this vaccine, if we can get you know, another month of two to up to 3 million doses a day, we're going to come out of the woods for wow. sure. Uh, let's talk about the vaccination. I know you are a big supporter of it. I think there's probably a level of uh, trepidation on behalf of millions still. I think you would agree to that. Why are why have you bought in so early and so convincingly into the effectiveness of Moderna or Pfizer or AstraZeneca? Why? By the way, I'm going to answer that strongly and deeply because it's an extremely important question but you you said you wanted personal stories here's my first answer my 16 year old kid is overweight you know him he's a wonderful human being he also suffers from anaphylaxis from nuts and that can actually lead to an emergency with one of these vaccines occasionally and i'm so concerned about protecting him because of his weight and because of his asthma that i vaccinated him and he not, and not only did i vaccinate him 
but he absolutely bought into it right away. Couldn't wait to get that vaccine. Couldn't wait to be protected. If I feel that way about my own precious 16 year old, you know, I feel that way about the country. And your larger question is, I can't believe anybody doesn't want this vaccine after we spent a year scaring the hell out of people over COVID-19. I even did it on the show with you today. Are you kidding me? COVID-19 is a really dangerous virus. Why wouldn't you want to be vaccinated against it? Why wouldn't you want to protect those around you who can't be vaccinated or have an immunocompromised condition where so, the vaccine won't work on what, them? Why what, wouldn't you? Why would I, I, I would say, Doc, that um, it's only been out there five months. And how do I know the long-term effects? How would you address that? I'm going to answer that better than I ever have, Bill. I want people to understand that I trust science in the following way. Science evolves. So whatever you're thinking a vaccine is, it's better than it was 50 years ago. So if you say, oh, flu shot, I'm finally used to that. Well, <laughs> that's from the 1950s. Right now, we're using technology that's way better than that because we're not putting an actual virus into your body. We're putting a tiny, tiny genetic thing into your body that doesn't get into your cells, by the way. It just signals you to make a protein. You have thousands of messenger RNA in there all, all the time now already doing that. And it's not brand new technology. It's been around since the 1990s. We've been testing this since the 1990s. We only had to figure out how to get it in without the body rejecting it. That was all that was left. So you're and telling me that this technology has been out there for 30 years, 20 years? It's been out there since the 1990s. Okay, so, and, then, and I, so then the question then becomes, how was it able to be produced so quickly and why just under this pandemic? Well, it, it, it's a, that's a really good question. The answer is, they were gearing up to use this vaccine for other things, including cancer treatments. They've been studying this in animals and humans for other reasons, so they could gear up for this. The trick was that so-called lipid nanoparticle, which is very fragile, and that's why President Biden is absolutely wrong to be bashing the Trump administration because Pfizer and Moderna had to get past the fragility of that and start to produce hundreds of millions of doses, which they did. But it took them a couple of months. That's all it is. And look at the safety of this. Hundreds of millions of people getting these, these two vaccines and doing incredibly well with them. I have to tell you something, Bill. Tony Fauci told me last year, if we get a vaccine that's 50, 60 percent effective, he's going to be happy. And, you know, he gets a lot of flack and he gets a lot of criticism, including from me and you. You know what? He is probably one of the top vaccinologists in the world. That's what he knows is vaccines and viruses. He never predicted anything this successful, 95%. And in the real world, in Israel, in the United Kingdom, and here in the United States, we're seeing those numbers. It is that effective. Mm. So I have not gotten a, I haven't had a flu shot in 20 years. And I've, I've just learned through this pandemic that the efficacy of a flu shot is somewhere between 30 and 60 percent, depending on the year and depending on what you've developed in the medical community. I, I would have not even thought about that before. But you're saying this is the efficacy in a Pfizer shot is greater than 90 percent. Same for Moderna. And J&J &J is right around that same area. That, that, that sounds really, really good. But I was hesitant. And I listened to you for a long time and, well, a couple months. <laughs> and you convinced me that the vaccine was safe. And that's part of the reason why I went ahead and got it last week. And so I, I'm fully vaccinated and I, I trust that everything's going to go okay. I trust the opinion that you give me. The second factor that convinced me of it is if you want to leave the country any 
any time in the next year, you're going to probably need proof of a vaccination before you fly anywhere outside of the U.S. You want to go to London or Paris or wherever it might be. You're not going to be able to go to those countries unless you can prove that you have the vaccination. You think I'm wrong about that? No, you're totally right. And I want to add something to this, which is that all medical decisions are made on relative terms. I want your listeners to understand what that means. It's going to sound silly. If I give you an aspirin for a headache, I don't tell you there's a one in a hundred thousand chance you could end up in a hospital with a bleed. When I give you an antibiotic, I, I'm, I'm focused in on your sore throat. I want to get rid of it. I don't, I don't tell you that that amoxicillin could, could give you a rash. Now, if you ask me, I will tell you. So in other words, every time we do something, a medical intervention that every one of your listeners goes through every single day, we know that there's some associated risks. In this case, it's never been clearer. The risks of the virus are enormous, and the risks of the vaccine are way, way lower than we ever thought yeah, possible. Okay, all right. So, um, you know, it's, it's been a week, Doc, okay? I haven't changed my behavior at all, and I'm wondering why I'm still wearing a mask. And I got sanitizer all over the place, and I still use that out of force of habit. I imagine that second part will wear off in terms of the hand sanitizer. But why, why do I need to have a mask in my pocket at all times and ready to put it on now still? Because you live in a blue state. How, how about, how about the fact that was a what, joke? You, how well, about the you're fa- saying because yeah. I'm in New York that that's the reason? Well, New York has a superimposed psychological terror associated with mask wearing. I think you're primarily wearing it because you think somebody's going to get after you if you don't. It's almost like wearing a hat in the sun or something. But in terms of actual real medical usage, you, now that you're fully vaccinated and a couple of weeks out, you actually don't need a mask at all. The chances of you spreading it or getting it, the only residual reason to possibly have a mask in very close quarters inside, in a crowd inside, might be that it's conceivably possible you could harbor the virus in your nose, not get sick from it, maybe very, very mildly, like a cold, mild, mildly ill but then, then pass it along to somebody else who's more at risk for complications and isn't vaccinated. That's all very theoretical. And one of the problems with the way this has been messaged in public health is what I just described to you is what they're talking about all the time, even though it's, it almost never happens. So yeah, Bill, if you walked around inside, outside, you know, and just relaxed and didn't wear a mask, the chances of you participating in some spread of COVID-19 is very, very, very low. So, Mark, here's the question. When do we lose the mask, whether it's New York or anywhere else? Well, what they're trying to convey so poorly is the idea that when more people are vaccinated and the amount of virus in the world is lower, that then then that will be the time. You don't need a mask for a virus that isn't around. You agree with that, Bill, right? Mm -hmm. What's the point of a mask if there isn't even a virus around? So, they want to see the numbers going down, not 50, 55,000 like we saw over the last 24 hours. You get below 10,000, they're going to say lose the mask. That's what the reasoning is. But that's an insensitive public health model. I think, and CDC Director Walensky told me this the other day, and I was so overjoyed to hear her say this because I got the feeling speaking to her that she's a real one-on-one type doctor with patients. She says it's liberating to throw away the mask, and I think she's right. I think people who are not doctors, I wear masks anyway. And, you know, we, we, we were trained to wear them in the operating room. I wear masks. But the general public thinks of a mask as constricting, conscripting. 
And I think the idea of, of getting rid of it is liberating. I think she's right about mm. that. We need to we need to move in that direction now, Bill. Okay. I want to ask you about these reports about blood clots, and I want to find out what's happening in India, too. But before we do that, you're listening to Hammer Time with Dr. Mark Siegel. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. Back here now, I'm Bill Hemmer, Dr. Mark Siegel. Our conversation continues. Some reports about, by the way, we're doing this conversation, uh, we're having this conversation on Thursday afternoon, April 29th. So I, some of this information could change. It always does over the next day or two. It, so to the listeners, when you're getting this, maybe the story is already adjusted. There always has to be a possibility uh, that that could happen. There are reports about some patients, after they get the vaccine, developing blood clots. Now, I know millions and millions of people have got this vaccination, but I think only a handful of people, I'm talking a dozen or two, who have reported blood clots. What's the truth about that, doctor? Well, that's a syndrome that's extremely rare, and it has to do with the body's own immune system making antibodies to platelets at the same time that they're making antibodies to the virus. It's a crossover phenomenon. Your immune system doesn't always aim perfectly, but the point is it's unbelievably rare, and that's another thing that's been poorly messaged from the public health community and from the politicians and the leaders, because how can you talk about something that occurs two in a million times at the most and talk about it in very real terms that people can relate to as though they could, it could happen to them. Bill, everybody that got the J&J shot that I know of came in here saying, I may have a headache. Uh-oh. And you could see it in their eyes. They're worried. They're worried. But the chances are so, so slim that I called it, I, I, I coined another term, the cable news headache. You watched on cable news, some doctor telling you what to look out for. You immediately assumed it was going to be you. So you got a, the cable TV headache, which you then connected to the J&J shot, which definitely didn't cause it because the chances are astronomically small. That's my fear book. That's what I wrote about in my fear book, over-personalizing the risk. We did a lot of damage to this shot with the way we paused it and pulled it off the market and all in the name of science. We didn't need, we didn't need to go nearly that far. Wow. Wow. Um, final topic here. Uh, listen, we could talk for hours, right? I, you know, Mark, I think... Somebody said, I, what, what's the biggest story you've ever covered in, um, in cable news, right? 
And I think September 11th, at the beginning of our conversation, is, is, was a jumping off point for why you got into the study of pandemics and why you were so curious about it from a medical standpoint and perhaps from a uh, psychological standpoint. I think you'd agree with that statement, correct, first of all? Yes, totally. Yeah. First, I got into the response to pandemics, fear of health scares, and then I got into the actual health health outbreaks themselves, and I got into contagions yeah. and pandemics, yes. So I, I always come back to 9-11 journalistically for the events of that time and how it changed the course of our lives here in America and overseas um, as well. But I, I really think the biggest story possibly of our lifetimes is happening right now. And I think everyone's going to... They'll judge their life based on events that happened pre-COVID, post-COVID, and during COVID. And I think we're still in that D.C. period. Might be rounding the curve on that, but still we're in that during COVID period. And psychologically, I, 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 don't, I don't think you can dispute that. Our lives have now been framed forever around this pandemic. Completely true, Bill. And I would add that it's made us aware, finally, hopefully, that we're part of a, a global health community. I mean, this virus didn't come from here. It came from China. We learned, once again, the Chinese government obscured an emerging pandemic like they did with SARS, like they've done before. That, that's at the minimum that they did that. They didn't inform the world. We learned that we didn't get boots on the ground. All of that going forward, we were hit unawares. You know, we didn't have the time to prepare for it. Now, even as we're gaining control in the United States over it, finally, after a horrific year, we see it emerging in India in much worse shape. And, and we're part of that issue because variants are, are occurring. Spin-off spin mutations are occurring that could lead to versions of this that we're not covered against. And we have to you know, consider what we can do to help with that and why that's happening. And you know, all of, all of that is the case. Now, I'm a believer, by the way, that we need to get this country on its feet first. I'm not about this idea of vaccine nationalism, that we ought to be exporting all of our vaccines. I think we need to vaccinate Americans first and then export our vaccines. That works. But I do think we, we have to be aware that we're part of a huge global health community, both in terms of the threats and in terms of what we have to do to okay. try to help I, other I, I think that's a fair answer. In India, I think on Monday, they were reporting about 2,500 deaths a day, uh, which is significant, but also it's a country that has more than a billion people. Uh, how, how concerned, based on the reporting you're getting, are you of the situation there? Well, and I am, and, and at the heart of the situation is the same kind of mythos that we've been talking about during the program here, where literally there are quacks out in the rural areas of India telling people, don't get this vaccine, it will hurt you. And, 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 and that kind of misinformation and noncompliance with vaccination is, is a huge, huge problem, and it's going to make it worse. People that are, that are not getting diagnosed, people that are dying in India because the healthcare infrastructure isn't up to supporting it. They don't have the treatments. All of this is a complete mess, and it has to do with it with a backwards healthcare system. And by the way, our healthcare system, I said at the beginning of the pandemic, and you heard me say this multiple times, we're up to the challenge. We actually weren't. I think we have a pretty, I'm not comparing us to India, by the way, but I think our, our healthcare system is way more patchwork than I realized. And we weren't up to the challenge. We, we rose to the challenge over the course of the pandemic. And that's something we should be proud of. Well, thank you, Mark, for being here today. I, just as we close out the conversation, what, what, do, you, what do you watch today? What, what do you keep an eye on on this story? What, what concerns you? What, what would happen that would tell Mark Siegel that keep an eye on this aspect of the story? 
So, Bill, you've been following that better than anyone over the course of the pandemic. You're there at your at your charts, at your boards, watching the, the uh, New York Times tracker. There's only one thing that matters right now in the United States. That's that number of how many people are getting shots in arms per day. I am watching that unbelievably. I want that to stay up around 3 million, and I will start to breathe. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. Dr. Mark Siegel, NYU Lango Medical Center, Fox News Channel in New York. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.